Hopefully you all have your handouts there and can see we're continuing in the Lord's Prayer. Last week we spent some time contemplating the opening address of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And this week we're going to continue our examination of the prayer uh, with a focus on the first petition of the prayer. The first request that we are taught to make each day by our Lord Jesus. I'm going to begin reading the prayer in verse 9, and I'll read the whole prayer, and then we'll pray. In this manner, our Lord Jesus said, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and that's the reminder that this is intended to be a An example of daily prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you inspired the apostle Matthew, our, our departed brother, to record the things that he had jotted down over his years with Jesus, the things that you brought to his remembrance, he recorded them for us and for our good. And we know through the power of your spirit we have a sure word. And we know exactly what Jesus said on that day about prayer. And he says the same thing still to us now through your word. Help us to hear his voice as his sheep, Lord. Help us to hear what he has to say to us, to take it to heart. Help us to, as we focus on each part of this prayer, to be more mindful when we pray it of what we're saying and how important these concepts really are in our daily lives. Grant us wisdom. Grant us understanding through the power of your spirit as we now look at this first petition of this prayer today. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. William Shakespeare once wrote this. Good name in a man and woman, dear my Lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Now Shakespeare hit upon something that is regarded as virtually universally true, namely that a person's name and a person's reputation are intertwined. What one thinks when he hears or uses a man's name, he thinks of that man himself. And this is true also of God. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray here in the second part of Matthew 6, 9, hallowed be your name. Speaking to God, our Father, we're taught to address him as our Father in heaven, 
And the first thing Jesus wants us to pray when we're talking to him is, hallowed be your name. Now, in attempting to better understand this particular petition, we're going to seek to answer a couple of questions. First of all, we're going to answer the question, what does it mean to hallow the Father's name? And then secondly, whom do we pray shall hallow the Father's name? When we say, hallowed be your name, by whom do we wish it to be hallowed? Only ourselves? We'll get into that. But first of all, we have to understand what it means. What does it mean to hallow the Father's name? Now, the Greek verb translated hallowed be here is this Greek word hagiadzo, which means to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify. Now, with reference to things, it means to set apart for sacred purposes, to consecrate or dedicate something. They would, they would hallow, they would sanctify, they would set apart certain vessels for use in the temple, for example. And with reference to God's name, it means to treat it as holy or to revere it. Um, we treat it as what it is. It is already holy. We don't make it holy. We recognize his holy name for what it is. So the point isn't that we make, make God's name holy, as I've said, but that we revere it as holy, that we acknowledge it as the holy name that it already is. His name is holy because he is holy. And we properly acknowledge his holiness when we desire every day that his name be acknowledged as holy. So this is just another way then of saying that we should acknowledge him for who he really is. That when we begin our prayers every day, we, we not only address him as our heavenly father, which as we saw last week, speaks of our close personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ our Lord, but then we immediately move into how important it is that God be regarded as holy, that his name be seen as holy, that we honor him for who he really is. When we want to see God's name honored and sanctified before others, it's because we want him to be so honored, right? This is why the Apostle Peter tells us that we need to be ready to give an answer or a defense for our faith in God. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify, that's that Greek verb hagiadzo that our Lord Jesus used, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now to sanctify or to hallow God in our hearts is simply to recognize who he truly is as a holy and sovereign God and to honor him as such in our hearts, right? For if we do not honor him this way in our hearts, we'll never do so before others. And that's what Peter has in mind when he says that. If we're going to honor God as the holy God in front of others and be ready to give an answer to them for our faith, well, it's got to be a reflection of who he is in our hearts already, right? That's the most important thing. Not only must we hallow God in our hearts or regard him as holy in our hearts if we're to be ready to give a defense for our faith, but we must also honor him in our hearts if we're going to be good and obedient witnesses of his grace toward us. Uh, remember what he said to the people of Israel in this regard in Leviticus 22, verses 31 through 33. 
And I'm going through a lot of verses today pretty quickly, so I hope you got your handouts ready. Um, so some of you might just want to listen and then look them up later. That might be easier for you. But in Leviticus 22, verses 31 through 33, we read, Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name. That's the opposite of hallowing God's name, isn't it? Regarding it as holy, treating it as holy, honoring it as holy. It's profaning it. How does that happen? Well, you you disobey him. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed. There you have it. If you profane his name, you profane him. If you don't hallow his name, you don't hallow him. You don't regard him as holy. He says, I shall be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That's the Hagiadzo in the Septuagint again. And this is the term Jesus used. I'm the one who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. If we are being sanctified by God, right, we will want his name to be honored in our lives. We can see then how crucial it is that we hallow God first in our hearts and then in our words and in our deeds. These things go together. Those who truly hallow God's name in their hearts, who truly regard him as holy in their hearts, that will show in what they say and do. And conversely, if people in what they say and do demonstrate, as God made clear to the Israelites, that they do not hallow God in their hearts, well, that'll tell the truth of their hearts, won't it, what they do. And sadly, this is something at which even the most mature and godly believers can sometimes fail. Even those we regard as the most mature, the most wise believers can at times fail to hallow God's name as they should. And the case of Moses, when the people of Israel complained that they had no water, is a prime example of this. Most of us, when we look back in the Old Testament, can think a few men who were stronger believers than Moses. In fact, we might not even be able to come up with one. It's going to be a short list. Somebody like Josiah... David, Abraham, it's a short list. Noah, he's right up there in the, in the greats, right, that we think of really mature, strong believers. And yet, he failed to hallow God's name before the people. We, we read this in, in Numbers 20, verses 7 through 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Now remember, this rod that he used is, is, is thing that he used to perform miracles with, right? Uh, on a number of occasions. And he says, take that same rod, that same staff, staff. And then he says, speak to the rock before their eyes. Now on a previous occasion, he, he was told to strike a rock for water to come out. And God told him to take that same rod that he used before with him. But this time, he, he doesn't say to strike the rock, does he? He says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? 
Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And we already know that's not what he was told to do. On a previous occasion, that's what he did. He was told to speak to the rock this time. So he's disobeying what God said. But the water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Thank God that sometimes when the leaders of his people fail, he helps his people anyway. (laughs) When sometimes we're not as faithful as we should be, God, in spite of our failures, still honors his word and helps his people. Thank God for that. Look what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. He's holding them both responsible for this, not just Moses. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, to regard me as holy. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses was not able to go into the promised land because of this. Francis Schaeffer once drew a lesson out of this, that sometimes when we're used to God working in a certain way or through a certain, say, church program, we start to trust in the program instead of God. Maybe Moses kind of trusted the rod (laughs) instead of God. But I submit to you that if Moses could fail to hallow God before the people of Israel, then we too can fail to hallow God before the eyes of others. If it can happen to Moses, it can happen to you or me. When we read passages like this, we should never think, well, if I were Moses' Jews, I would never have done that. That's what we think. We've got a lot to learn about sin and temptation and uh, humility. No wonder then that Jesus wants our first petition, our first thought in prayer to be that God's name be hallowed. If Moses maybe had gotten up that day and prayed something like the Lord's Prayer, his day may have gone better for him. We don't know what he prayed. If he did pray something like that, he still failed. And so can we. But our Lord Jesus knows that we need to make this the focus of our hearts the first thing every day. And he knows that we're not truly ready to call out to God in prayer unless this is our primary aim. But to what specifically does our Lord Jesus refer when he speaks of God's name here? Now, we've been told to address him with a title, Father. And then we're to pray, hallowed be your name. Well, in this context, the only way Jesus uh, has told us to address him, as I said, is our Father. So we can assume that we definitely want to to be hallowed or seen as our Holy Father, right? We want him to see... Uh, people to see him as our father who is holy. We know that much. Um, But when God's name, or rather one of his many names or titles, is referred to in scripture, it is usually a way of revealing something about who he is. The title father reveals something about who he is to us, right? All his names or titles in the Bible are intended to, to tell us something about him. And so I want to look at a few examples of what, of what I mean by this. The first one will be in uh, Exodus 3.14, back to Moses again. Uh, this is at the burning bush incident. 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you to me. Because he had said, in whose name should I come? You know. Now here, God tells Moses the meaning of his proper name, which we typically today translate as Yahweh. Most people will translate it that way, although we're not exactly sure how it ought to be translated. That's our best guess. Something like Yahweh or Yahweh, something like that. But that, that's the most common actual name. That's the actual name of God in the Old Testament, although there are other names by which he revealed himself. This name reveals, this I am meaning name, that he is the self-existent, uncreated God. Most theologians say that this name being revealed as meaning I am says that God is the one who eternally exists He wasn't created. He is the creator of all that exists. So when we pray that his name will be hallowed, uh, we're praying that he will be acknowledged as the self-existent, eternal creator. Something like that. In Exodus 33, 19, we're told, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He's speaking uh, to Moses here because Moses wanted to see the Lord. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God's name identifies him as the gracious and compassionate one. When, when you think of him, you should think of the sovereign ruler of the universe who is gracious and compassionate. And so when we hallow his name, we want him to be seen in this light, right? In Exodus 34, 14, sticking in the book of Exodus, we'll look at a final example where he says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. That's an interesting name for God, additional name for God, Jealous. <laughs> What's that mean? Well, God's name reveals that he will not share his glory with another. And that he is justly angered when we give to another the honor and worship that is due to him alone. When we pray then that his name will be hallowed, we're praying that he will be worshipped as the only true God. And that his glory will not be given to another. These are the kinds of things we should think about when we pray, hallowed be your name. Now, I've looked at all these Old Testament examples because the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking knew these scriptures. And when they heard, hallowed be your name, these would be the kinds of things they ought to have been thinking about that should have been evoked in their minds by that request. And so that's what we should think about, these kinds of things we think of hallowed be your name. John Stott has done a, a good job of summarizing the matter when he writes this, and I think this quote might be in your notes. The name of God is not a combination of the letters G, O, and D. The name stands for the person who bears it, for his character and activity. So God's name is God himself as he is in himself and has revealed himself. His name is already holy in that it is separate from and exalted over every other name. 
but we pray that it might be hallowed, treated as holy, because we ardently desire that due honor may be given to it, that is, to him whose name it is, in our own lives, in the church, and in the world. I think Chip Bell has also given a good brief explanation of Jesus' meaning when he writes this, when we speak of God's name, what we really mean is God himself. So this first request is a longing to see God treated as special, to see him recognized as God and treated as only God deserves to be treated. There are two separate aspects to this request, one in the present and one in the future, and I thought this was correct. There will be a time when God is finally treated as holy by all of creation. That's way in the future. Partly this prayer is longing for that day to come when everyone in the world recognizes and honors God. But there is also a present aspect. This is a prayer that right now, among us, more and more people would recognize who God is and begin to treat him the way only God deserves to be treated. And this leads to our next question then. Talked about what it means when we pray, hallowed be your name. Now, whom do we pray shall hallow the Father's name? <laughs> when we're praying this prayer, who do we have in mind as the hallowers, right? Those who are treating God's name as holy. Because notice when Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, he does not restrict it in any way. He doesn't, he does not limit the request to hallowed be your name in me or hallowed be your name in the church. In it, in addition to the general nature of the petition, the following petitions also indicate that we are to desire that God's name be hallowed by all people everywhere. For Jesus says immediately following this that we should pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we want his kingdom to come all over the earth to all people. Well, then that's where we want his name to be hallowed as well, Right? I would suggest that we simply cannot desire that God's name be hallowed in our lives without wanting it to be true of everyone else as well. How, after all, can we sincerely desire that God be honored and yet not be bothered that so many people dishonor him? If what drives us is this desire that God be seen for who he truly is and honored for who he truly is, how can we not be bothered that he's not honored this way by so many people in the world? Not just because we're jealous for his sake, right, that he get the glory that he deserves, but because we care about them and their plight. So with this in mind, let's consider some scriptural examples that demonstrate what hallowing God's name looks like. For our purposes this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the Psalms, because there's a lot in the Psalms on this theme. <clears throat> As we do so, we're going to see how the people of God associated worshiping him with praising and honoring his name. These examples will also demonstrate not only a desire that God be hallowed in the life of the individual believer, but also in the lives of others and throughout the earth. What you'll see in the Psalms is those who are caught up in a desire to see God glorified and his name be honored, aren't satisfied when it isn't honored by everyone and pray that it will be and hope that it will be. 
beginning in Psalm 7, 17. I'm just going to, I'm going to go through quite a few Psalms here. Um, Psalm 7, 17 says this, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Notice the equivalence between singing praises to the name of the Lord and singing praises to the Lord himself. And this is something you see throughout the Psalms. It's what Jesus presupposes, right, in this request, hallowed be your name. In Psalm 1849, we read, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, those are the nations surrounding Israel, and sing praises to your name. Psalm 22.22 says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. In the worship of Israel, you see it constantly built in that those of us who worship the true God want other people to worship him too. Part of our worship and praise to God is a desire for that. As John Piper, I think, rightly said, reflecting on some of these psalms in one of his books, I think it's called Let the Nations Be Glad, a very good book on missions. He says, the desire for evangelism and mission work flows out of worship. Those who worship the true God want everyone else to worship him too. Those who know God for who he really is want everyone else to know him too. Show me a professing believer who cares not at all that other people come to know God and I'll show you a believer who doesn't know God very well. Psalm 23.3 says, Of God, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the ultimate reason that God works in my life? For his own glory. His own name will be hallowed. And I'm the beneficiary of a lot of grace and a lot of good as he seeks that goal. And this is one of the ways that he himself ensures that his name will be hallowed, right? In Psalm 25, 11, we read, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. It's another way of wanting God's name to be hallowed. Show yourself for who you truly are, the great God that you are, in the forgiving of my sins. Because my sins are great. That is in their great wonderful, their great horrible. So just as God is rightly concerned with the glory of his own name, we too should seek the glory of his name. Psalm 31.3 says this, You are my rock and my fortress, therefore for your name's sake lead and guide me. Psalm 63, verses 3 through 5 say, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as the marrow and fatness, as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 66, 1 and 2 says this, Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. When we say, hallowed be your name, what we mean is everywhere, by everyone. 
In Psalm 72, 18 and 19, we read this. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. See, when, notice this expansion. When you worship God and you really desire his name to be glorified in your own life, you want it everywhere. You want his name to be held everywhere in the whole earth. And then he says, amen and amen. You get a double amen to that thought. Psalm 79.9 says this, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the sake of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Over and over again we see this theme. One more example, Psalm 80, verses 17 through 19. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and, and we shall call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to sign, shine, and we shall be saved. Now, that, that particular psalm shows us that we cannot call upon and properly hallow God's name unless he graciously enables us to do so. They knew... The authors of that psalm, we're not going to be able to call on your name as we should, let alone hallow your name as we should, right? Unless you do something in us first, unless you revive us and give us new life, unless you restore us. We'll never be able to hallow God's name as we should without full reliance upon him, his power, his grace. We can't do it in and of ourselves. This too we see in the psalms. And of course, our Lord Jesus also demonstrated a consuming desire that the Lord's, the Father's name be glorified. He said this in John 12, 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus went to the cross he endured the suffering because his, he had this all-consuming desire that the Father's name be glorified. Another way of saying that is hallowed be seen as holy and wonderful, which is another way of saying we want God to be seen right, in all his glory. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. He always answered Jesus' prayers. And he answered this one. Many more examples could be given, but I hope we've all seen that Jesus is not really teaching a new concept here. When he teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. This idea, it's all through the scriptures. It's part of the worship of God's people everywhere at all times. So Jesus is just teaching us to pray as all true believers have always prayed. And apparently in his day, these concepts were being lost sight of. They are in our day as well. Our Lord Jesus expects us to have the same desire for God's glory that all true believers have always had. Oh, he knows that we'll fail just like they did. 
We looked at the example of Moses and one of his failures. That's why we'll see in the coming weeks, we're going to be praying every day also that God not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because every day we fail. Every day we need forgiveness. He's going to teach us to ask for forgiveness every day. These are just ways of recognizing that we rely on God and his grace and his power. Always as we seek to hallow his name. He wants us to have the same all-consuming desire that he himself had for the Father's name to be hallowed among the nations. One could argue that that was the ultimate purpose of everything that Jesus did. Perhaps we should end our examination of this text then by asking ourselves a couple of questions. Does this desire express itself in our prayers? Think about your own prayer life. How much of it, or is any part of it, focused on wanting God to be glorified, his name to be seen as great in and through your life and in the world? If, if, you're, if you're thinking about it, thinking, boy, not very much, uh, I would suggest that start praying the Lord's Prayer every day. And remember, there's a different between difference as we've seen over the past couple of weeks between saying it and praying it right we're going through it in this long way that we're going through it piece by piece so that the more we say it the more we can pray it and know what we're saying when we're praying it and really mean it and pray it sincerely maybe if we start doing or at least using it as an outline every day for our praying we'll see our whole perspective change on what's important to us. Because if in our prayer lives on a regular basis, God's glory, his name, are of prime importance to us, we haven't yet learned to pray at all the way Jesus wants us to pray. We haven't even learned Christianity 101 like we should. And we need to go back to the starting point. And this prayer is a good place to do that, to start doing that. If our prayers aren't focused this way, rarely focused this way, or not at all focused this way, then we're in the same boat that Moses was in that day when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And he got disciplined for that. Maybe some of us are being disciplined too. Well, the answer to that, we know, is to trust in God anew and seek his forgiveness. Does a desire for God's glory eclipse all other desires? So that it's the first thing we think of when we pray. It's probably not true of any of us on a regular basis, right? But it could be. And it should be. And Jesus is teaching us how. It can be. And should be. So, let's, if we're struggling, as Moses struggled on that faithful day, to hallow God's name as we should in our prayers then let's just begin by asking God to give us a desire to truly hallow his name in our hearts so that we will also hallow his name in our daily lives and all that we say and do. Let us pray with the psalmist. Revive us again. Restore us. Forgive us 
for our short-sighted, anemic faith, which cares more about what we want every day than about you and your purposes. We can start there. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's my, it's my hope and prayer that you would convict me and all the believers in this room of any failure that we've had in our lives of wanting you to be sanctified, holy, by that scene as who you really are, as the holy, sovereign God that we get to know and call Father. Lord, forgive us for any ways in which we failed in our prayer life and in our daily lives to seek first your glory in all that we say and do and to want to see you glorified in the world around us from a sincere heart that desires the things of Christ more than the things of the world. And Lord, some of us may have been doing better than we thought as we looked at this and are encouraged that we've been on the right track. And we thank you for that encouragement as well. Help us to do even better, I pray, by your grace and for your glory. And we will give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not a believer and you haven't yet come to know Christ as your Savior, that can change today. You may have walked in here, you came into a church for some reason, and I would put to you that God and his providence had something to do with that. And if you haven't yet come to know him, maybe you're here so that you can, that you can know that Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was fully God and fully man, in one person in some mysterious way, who lived a perfectly righteous life and died on the cross in our place and took the punishment for our sins. He was the only one who could do it. The perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf. And he ascended to the Father's right hand. And you know what he's doing there? He's interceding always for all of us who have trusted in him. And he's reigning as sovereign Lord of the universe. He's alive. And he's calling out to you to trust in him, to leave off trusting your own efforts. Trust in him to save you from your sins, to forgive you, to give you the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life in him. So I would just put to you that today, trust in the Lord. And if you do, then talk to one of the believers in this room who can help you to learn where to go next and what to do next. And with that, I just want to thank you all once again for your kind attention.